0: I'm just getting really frustrated with the level of mediocre fuckery. No, what did you call him?
1: We gotta talk about Star Trek. You're not up to date on the new Star Trek? No. What What is your deal?
0: I don't know. I didn't like it. I'm trying to like it. Oh,
1: damn it, Nicole.
0: Are you recording now? Of course. (laughs) We are showing, we, meaning my husband and I, are showing our 17 year old, soon to be 18 year old, all of the best episodes of Next Generation. And we're watching them together as a family. I think we're going to get to the point where we're all good with Next Generation and then we'll pick up the, we'll pick up the new one
1: Well where, where did you leave off with the new Star Trek?
0: I, I honestly only watched the first episode.
1: Okay. So here here's what I have to tell you.
0: Okay. What do you have to tell me?
1: The Wait, first Are you going to have spoilers cuz if you No, no, spoilers, no no no. No no spoilers. Have I wouldn't spoiler alert. I wouldn't fuck you up like that. That's not okay, right. Thank you. It's thank too you. new. The first episode, I don't know what was happening there. I don't know if that's the network like sticking their fingers into it or what. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea how the first episode was made by the same people who made the rest of the season. Oh,
0: did you check and see if it was the same people? I Because often those who would make a pilot are not the same ones that you pick up later on if that was actually a pilot.
1: That could be. Yeah, we should should dig around for that because it takes them a little while to find their footing. Mm. But then it really, really feels like Star Trek. And I, I'm gonna tell you for the longest time, Cisco, he yep. was my favorite captain.
0: <gasps> don't say, don't say because I'm still not, I mean, I kind of but in terms of protagonists, you're with you're with is it protagonist or captain that no, you're with? No I'm, I'm,
1: I'm saying straight up captain here.
0: Okay. okay.
1: My, Michael Burnham is a captain, no matter mm-hmm. what her rank ends up mm-hmm. being.
0: Mm-hmm, hmm
1: Because she—and I, and, and that's what I think is so interesting about this particular chapter of Star Trek, is that they're yeah. showing that being a captain is more than just a matter of rank. It's about attitude. It's about outlook. It's about convictions. By the second episode, Michael Burnham doesn't have any rank at all. Mm. But as you watch— Yeah, that's,
0: that's where I left. She, she doesn't have any rank.
1: Right. But as you watch her through the season, what you see— is as far as i'm concerned the finest star trek captain we have been given
0: wow okay so i'm here for it if you tell me that i should stick with it i'll stick with it can people watch the rest and skip the first one you know or do you need that you just need that as exposition
1: right i i think so like watch it knowing that something weird is going on that it doesn't feel like Star Trek at first, and that's okay because they right. they will find their footing,
0: right? Okay. Later, all right, cool. So I was super pumped for the two women of color who started the you know who started as the co protagonists of the first episode. I mean, I was the first night I was like yes, and by the end of that episode, I had to really take a deep breath and think about whether or not I, I felt like I wanted to keep going. And and I was I'll be honest, I was scared it was going to ruin Star Trek for me, the franchise, right the incredibly important mythology of it like the storytelling is even hit or miss sometimes but the oh, for sure the right like the prime directives and the in the the mythology and the ethics of it and and so i've always been a, a next generation uh, fan because jean luc is you know
1: he's a wonderful captain
0: he's a wonderful example of a captain of a leader and the one we watched last night is one where he goes he goes home with his brother and he has, he fights his brother in the mud it's so great. Oh, oh yeah, so I like great. that one. Yeah, that one was all about families because Worf's adoptive mm-hmm. parents came to the uh, Enterprise and the Crushers are still dealing with the loss of of the dad. It was a l- really wonderful glimpse into the, <laughs> what's the word in, other than humanity? Because not everybody's human. Right. <laughs> the The ties that bind all of the, the sentient species <laughs> in the universe. How about that?
1: I need to tell you, Deep Space Nine is a better show than Next Generation. I know.
0: You've told me this before. I want to believe. Would you recommend going back to Deep Space Nine before the current show?
1: I think so, because you know what? Avery Brooks, yeah, is, well. he's phenomenal. He's such a good captain. And, you know, while Next Generation had some pretty crummy writing for the women characters, Deep Space Nine's women are pretty badass. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, Major Kira is... Yeah. Because yep. c- Bajorans are like space Puerto Ricans, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you oh, my know, God. Colonized, pretty matriarchal.
0: You say this as a Puerto Rican yourself.
1: I do, right.
0: <laughs> we should probably emphasize that part. Right. So.
1: I identify so deeply with right. with the Bajorans. Mm. and And so Major Kira being this colonized person who is just trying to make it, keep things together for her people. I find her to be a very compelling character and her story to be really, really interesting. And overall, the, the chemistry between her and Cisco, I think, is, is one of the best pairings, not just in Star Trek, but in TV generally. Like Those two work together really well.
0: Do you want to talk about the Sheryl Sandberg thing at all?
1: Wait, what Sheryl Sandberg? The
0: one thing? that I sent you this morning that was that was making the, the the Twitter rounds about how she's warning about backlash against women.
1: You know, I don't I don't know that I got to read that yet. What's the story?
0: Uh, essentially, that as things break open and people are starting to tell their stories and women are ostensibly uh, demanding changes in the workplace and or you know justice, Sheryl Sandberg says. Women be warned, there's going to be great backlash. And that was making the rounds on Twitter today. I just kept thinking, how does someone think that hasn't already happened?
1: Nicole, have you experienced <laughs> backlash in in your time working to advance uh, inclusion, gendered and otherwise?
0: The, the gentle, occasional pushback? No, I mean, yeah, it's ugly. It's horrible. It's impossible to tell how much of it is gendered and how much of it is racialized and how much of it is, you know, who knows what at any given time, age.
1: Well, th- well, that's the mindfuck of all of it, right? Is that you have to sit there questioning yourself and your own sanity and your interpretation of reality because nobody's going to come right out and say, oh, actually, we don't like women to do anything <laughs> right. that involves talking. That's
0: right. And maybe it's, or, or in my case, we don't like to hear from Mexicans. I mean, like, you really don't know what somebody's th- thinking but what i did come to understand at some point in my career was it didn't matter it just was other. Nicole are you mexican? <laughs> I am. I am, okay. am mexican american and can trace my okay. maternal roots all the way back to southern california where we were in mexico before this wasn't mexico. The old I, country. The old old country, right? You've heard the we didn't cross the border the border crossed us. That's yeah. That's that, right. that's that's my family all you can say, all you feel is, okay, you've got this usually white guy looking at you and, and delivering said backlash, right. In whatever form it's coming, it can be nasty words. It can be sabotaging your work. It can be talking about talking about you behind your back to undermine you, whatever it is. And you're looking at him and you go, Oh,
1: that sounds awful. I, I can't believe that <laughs> that these things have happened. <laughs> to you in your well, world have
0: they happened to you sir
1: i mean i uh, i couldn't say
0: <laughs> you legally couldn't say
1: <laughs> no exactly
0: <laughs> but you just you listen you, you listen to them frantically trying to make sense of new information that was delivered in a package that they've never really been this up close and personal with before you know and so you ask people like you can just hear them talking about when they think Latinos or they think Mexicans they're very clearly thinking about who's landscaping their home and who is cleaning their house today and 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 then you know you throw one of me in there and they they just it's like these some of these guys they just scrambles their freaking brains because they've only ever dealt with particularly Latinos, but uh, people of color in general, I would imagine, in a power dynamic where there is no, they are not peers with these folks.
1: My favorite anecdote of yours (laughs) involves you addressing some executives at a technology company that everyone has heard of, (laughs) and and we will not not mention their names, but... I, I believe you were explaining why you believe that an academic pedigree should not be a gating factor on hiring. Is, is that is that, that right? That is correct. So what happened there?
0: It was eight to ten people in the room, two women, um, myself being one, and uh, the rest of the room was white, including the other woman who was there. And I was explaining that they were using someone else's bias to codify bias into their own hiring, that being they were assuming that if somebody, an engineer in particular, went to a named university, one where they said, "Oh, it's got pedigree, right? Oh, great, the credentialing's happening." That there was an automatic anything that would happen. I mean, the 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 actual phrase was, "Well, this guy went to Harvard and worked at Facebook, so clearly we're going to hire him." And I clearly, clearly, because what what could go wrong? And I said, you know, when you put that much on someone else's selection of him into their university, the fact that he has a, a degree from there only tells you that he did what was necessary to get a degree from there and that he got in one way or another. Right. It does not tell you who's going to be best for this job for which you are hiring. And I was talking about how many tech companies use higher education as a proxy for something else and the two don't match um, because people are consistently disappointed. And I use, as I always or I often do, I use Stanford as the example. You know, if we keep using that as shorthand for someone who deserves a job here and you want to diversify your company, this is going to be very difficult to reconcile. And the woman who was at the table of executives got very annoyed with me, um, not that far into my, sort of my lesson. And she said, Do you think you would be less bitter about Stanford if you could have gotten in?
1: Do you think you could have gotten into Stanford <laughs> if, if you had tried?
0: Well, there's the punchline because I did, I'm a class of 94. And she. You, you
1: attended Stanford I, University. I did. I did. Now, Nicole, why, why do you suppose. That she would assume that you were not able to get into Stanford.
0: Why don't you answer that question for me? No, I. I
1: I couldn't possibly imagine. Well. I'm stumped.
0: (laughs) So clearly I immediately, not even immediately, I, I actually extended some sort of empathy to her. In, in, in my in my brain, I sort of said, oh, she really just put her foot in her mouth. That's going to be embarrassing for her. You know, when I when I deliver the punchline here um, and it was and, and it was terrible. The interesting thing, though, is that she didn't. Well, no, 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 no don't jump to the end there. Like, <laughs>
1: how did you deliver the punchline uh, here? Like, give us give us the blood I, of I, this, I, please.
0: I said I got to a well actually a person in with legitimate, right. you know, legitimate uh, use of well actually. I said, well, actually, I did get in. I did go there in the class of 1994. And maybe I said it with a little more passion than that. Um, but you know, I am not to humiliate a person. I just want,
1: but, but what was the response to you? Just like, you know, cutting her <laughs> knees out from under there. Well,
0: I think the, the, the bigger responses from the people sitting around the table who just sort of, but you, there's this, like this collective like gasp Grown. or just like, Oh, like a punch in the gut. <laughs> and then I just paused and I looked at her and she said, well, I went there too. And I said, "Okay, great. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm trying to like, like hey, you know, we all met—we met idiots there, right? Like, I definitely knew people who, like, you know, just I, you just don't know. Well, whatever. Any population is hit or miss, and I definitely met some folks there who were like miss.
1: So her response to that was, well, I went to Stanford yes, too.
0: Yes, not even an apology. No, she never apologized. There, there was no apology, and and she just got very defensive. Well, I went there too, and I said that that's great. So." You know what I'm talking about, that it's not as if everybody at Stanford is magically anything. There are a lot of factors that go into who ends up there. And she said, well, I learned a lot. And I said, I'm glad. I definitely learned a lot, too. But I'm also talking about this other dynamic in that. You know, some people maybe didn't, quote unquote, deserve to get in and made the best of it and were awesome and it ended up being great, in which case they did belong there. And some people were, you know, folks who sort of skated their way in and somebody else paid for it and they didn't contribute a hell of a lot to education or the campus or campus life. And I was trying to say, like, hey, don't you remember that it was it was more than just. Wasn't it an amazing, perfect place? And she wouldn't budge. And she said, well, it just seems as though you and I have very, very different experiences, which of course is also true. Like yes, all all well, of those things. Well, are You true.
1: you do have different experiences, and if if her experiences were sufficient, I don't think they would have need to call the consultant. Isn't that right? <laughs>
0: That's a good point. That is a good point because there's a.
1: Like, what is the purpose of this exercise? <laughs> if your particular experience here is not going to be valued, these people sound like assholes. So did you did you keep I working? I did not. With I think that was these... the, okay. I,
0: I, I declined to re up on the the RFP and. Uh, you know, to, to sell some, some follow-on business because I think we were all done there. We should answer questions from real people who are working in Yeah, tech. what do you got? Well, let me see. Let me see here. From the interwebs, we love your questions, by the way. Keep them coming in. What can you do as an individual when you find compensation discrepancy in your company, especially when white and or males are paid more? What are effective ways to share information and mobilize as a group? Is this even a good thing to want? So
1: I love yeah, this question because yeah, yeah. it, it has such a clear and straightforward yeah. answer. First of all, let's stress the law here. Uh, we have federal labor laws which establish that, A, you are permitted to have any conversation you want with any person you want. It is illegal for an employer to tell you that you cannot talk about your compensation. That is correct. Number two, it is also illegal for an employer to interfere in anything that qualifies as a protected, concerted activity. That is, if you are going around and having conversations with your colleagues about what they are getting paid, if you are interfered with in that you are also finding yourself with an employer acting against federal law. So the law here is very clear and explicit that whatever you want to do around this, you are permitted to do. Now, taking the law aside, what should you actually practically do about it? There are some interesting examples that we can point to. Erica Baker has a phenomenal case study for you in the form of her salary transparency spreadsheet that she circulated at Google. And a whole bunch of people passed this around. They filled in some of their information, including their compensation and it turned out, whoops, there are some discrepancies mm-hmm. in who was getting paid for doing what work. So there is one example of one of the things that you can do. A lot of this comes down to organizing with people, and that means making trouble. So you have to have an appetite for making your bosses upset if this is a thing that happens, because what it means is that somewhere they have created a system which is unjust, and it is now going to be up to them to fix that system, and so you are creating inconvenience in their world. So you have to have an appetite for trouble, but you are absolutely permitted to organize And there are obviously measures that you can take to make sure you can collect that information. Yes,
0: very thorough answer. And in the state of California, if that is in fact where you are, women can ask to see the exact pay of everybody at her peer level in a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that just went into effect, I think, in January of 2016. Most companies have not figured out how to... uh, actualize this but if you ask your HR they by law have to have a system to show you where you stand should you band together with everybody else is that part of the question too yes what are effective ways to share information and mobilize as a group well you did say the the spreadsheet you can literally just start a google spreadsheet and ask people to populate it that's fine get ready for there to be weirdness because instead of getting immediately angry at the people who set the pay, folks will start to get angry with each other first, and that is, um, and that is, uh, it. It is not a reason to not do it, but it's one of those things you should just know about before it happens. Um, and it can happen among friends. It can happen among a lot of. Th- You know, a lot of different combinations of people. But remember that what you're trying to fix is the system that would make there be such a discrepancy. You cannot really be angry at an individual who goes out and gets and asks for what somebody will actually pay them. Like that, that's not that's not fair. We want to we want more people to know how to do this and we want more people to know how to advocate for themselves. Uh, so expect there to be an, some awkwardness once you start revealing it. Is this a good thing to want? Yes. The, the thing that you want to ask for specifically is a salary census and you should ask for something called a disparate impact report, especially on everything from if there are going to be layoffs to promotions, what you want a company to be able to do is tell you by demographic axis whether or not certain parts of the population are getting hit harder than others. So we all know what that means. It means, okay, I want to see the salary census and you realize that a bunch of people are paid, there's a huge gap. And then you say, I want a disparate impact report and you realize everybody at the bottom of the pay scale is a woman of color, which is probably true. Then you go, okay, now not only are we looking at pay discrepancy, but now we're looking at it along protected class lines and, and along demographic axes. And that's what... Those are some really important phrases for you to know if you go down this road.
1: Now, if they want to fix things, Mm -hmm. what happens?
0: Well, a huge part of this is if you ask for this, then what is the response? Because some of you shouldn't be surprised to find out that when you ask for it, the answer is going to be no. And you need to decide what you want to do then. And... The answer being no and they're being pushed back, should tell you a lot about your company. I have been inside companies where somebody will ask for the salary census. The executive team actually publicly says, no, we're not doing that. But then privately they do it because they go, oh, crap, I guess we better find Uh-oh. out what we're dealing with. But they don't circle back and say, OK, we did it. And yeah, it's bad. You'll just start to notice people getting bumps in pay, which is great. But you won't necessarily know that you triggered anything. It won't be that obvious. So you have to decide how much of your own social capital and your own political capital inside a company you're willing to spend on trying to get that salary information in a formal channel. That doesn't, that, that's not anything about the informal channel. If you do it in the informal channel, then what you say is, we are for those who have replied, and you can ask them demographic information, you can keep it anonymous, you can reveal actual, actual names. It's up to you. You can go and report to HR. We did our own salary census. This is what we found. What you should be prepared for is a very defensive HR person or a very defensive finance person if that's where they send you.
1: But but Nicole, I thought that HR <laughs> was committed to protecting the interests of workers. Is that is that not accurate? I love,
0: love your you're snarky naive Danilo. Of course, HR is not there to protect employees. It is the rare company where HR is set up to be oriented towards the well-being and the long-term health of an employee. If I had my druthers in companies, I would put HR and legal together and make that be a function. I know that there's some, there's some conflict there that you can't always just have those, but I want people to think about HR and legal much more as complementary parts serving the same purpose to manage liabilities, vulnerabilities, risk to the company, to the company. Now, a lot of HR individuals get into the work because they care about employees and they think that's what they're going to do. And so every company has some nice HR folks in it who are still even themselves under the belief that they're supposed to be there working for employees. But when chips are down...
1: But they're structurally they're disadvantaged that's right. in this that's right. and because the company does not want to use them in that capacity. That is correct.
0: Most companies will not. This is why we, via consulting, one of the things we advocate for is the part of the company that's working on culture, communications, facilities... DNI. That is not HR. Diversity and inclusion is not an HR function. I'm going to end up saying this, I don't know how many times. Diversity and inclusion is not part of HR. It cannot work that way. Because the-
1: Y'all fucking up if you put DNI under HR. And
0: and this is what it it generally looks like in companies. You get, let's take a sort of a, you know, a startup that's starting to blossom and they're at like 50, 60 people. The way HR was built Is that at some point they decided to go from a vendor because they were paying some percentage of their payroll to a vendor to manage all of their legal HR stuff. And then they realized, okay, well, that's not cost efficient anymore. We're going to pivot towards having our own HR team or, God forbid, there was some crisis that caused them to bring an HR team on site. Right. And so Mm, that
1: that happens that happens
0: sometimes. So you hire an HR person or somebody who's been like the office manager ends up them becoming kind of an HR generalist. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the training to do it, but they're smart enough to figure it out. That's great. You can can hobble along for a year like that, and then you have to hire a more senior HR person. This is not the structure out of which diversity and inclusion can thrive. Their jobs are about benefits. Their jobs are about offer letters. Their jobs are about making sure that legal requirements are in place, like sexual harassment training, uh, which is mandatory in the state of California after fifty employees they 're doing those things. They are not the that is not the same skill set as people who are making sure all hands meetings are inclusive and you hear lots of voices. The same people who are actually making sure that um, you know the recruitment team knows all of the communities where they can actually start to start to recruit talent from. That's not the same group of people who try to make sure that the company is on the right side of, you know, upcoming social and political issues. All of those things do not live in HR. And right now they're all squished in HR, all under the tiny banner of diversity and inclusion and all handed to a very junior, relatively young, predominantly white woman who is now supposed to go figure out all of these things with no training, no budget, and no backup in a department That is meant to just mitigate risk. And that might sound really harsh. And I apologize to my friends who are in HR out there because I know a lot of you are trying to do it in a much more creative way. But if you're looking at the functions of a company, there is no real room to argue that an HR department, so your average HR department, is there for the betterment of employees. Once you've separated culture and HR, you will see things improve on both sides of the house.
1: We've done a good job addressing the needs of labor in this answer, but I I know from our last episode that we do have folks in management who are also listening, and so I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this podcast in management absolutely wants fair and equitable pay in their organization. What are steps that managers can do to ensure that it's not even necessary for somebody to go and do all of this salary detective work in the first place.
0: So if you're a manager, one of the things that you should know, like have memorized is the compensation package of every single person on your team, because you have to start at the team level. And chances are you inherited at least some of the people on your team and you didn't actually hire them or set their salaries. So you need to know where everything falls in line. One of the things that can lull managers into feeling like everything is okay on their team is that you'll only ask for salary and you'll say, show me the salaries of everybody on my team. And you go, okay, that range is pretty good. And it seems like, yeah, some of the, you know, the the stronger people are making a little more Than those who are still, you know, more junior and coming up in their careers, okay, I can live with this discrepancy, right? What managers often forget to ask for is the equity or anything else that somebody, that a savvy negotiator came in and negotiated on their way in the door because the manager wouldn't necessarily have been the person to do that. And so where we see in tech companies, much wider discrepancy is on those shares, if you're a manager, you can ask for things like equity grant refreshing. And of course, that has to be taken to a board. But you as a manager, if this is something that that you care about, you're the one who should be carrying the mantle. And no, you can't do it the same way an individual contributor did sort of the, the grassroots, like let's find out what everybody's making. You can't do that on your first try. You should go up the ladder and say, these are the things I'd like to request. Then if there's pushback then you have other things at your disposal. But but in order to be seen as a, as a team player and a good leader, the first thing you should do is ask above you.
1: How about our next question? Oh, okay. Is there ever a time when the answer is that you can fix the culture of a workplace? It seems like if you feel the need to fix culture, it's not actually salvageable. and You should cut your losses and get out immediately. Are there times when it's possible to fix cultures? What factors would make it likely to succeed? All right. That's a cool question. That's a really good question.
0: There are a couple of different circumstances under which it's possible. Number one, the culture just went through a massive upheaval, a crisis. They lost a leader. They were called out publicly for something, and everybody's feeling the pain. That is a time when you can actually start to fix the culture of a workplace. Another time you can actually fix the culture of a workplace is when a, a new person comes to into leadership, either raising through the ranks or is hired into leadership and looks around and goes, oh, this isn't at all what we meant to build. And maybe it doesn't even have to be a new leader. Just be, it's just a leader who says, this isn't at all working anymore. And it's it's not that the culture was built with malicious intent, but folks are starting to have their eyes open to, oh, wow, we have all these bad practices that we we just sort of took for granted. And now that we've hired, you know, the next group of people, we're realizing this isn't scalable. Nobody's happy here. So, Those are two circumstances under which culture can actually be fixed. I think for every 50 people or so, it it takes about a year. But the first year is really hard. And if you've got somewhere around 50, maybe 50 to 80 people, you make great progress in a year, enormous progress in that first year. As you get towards your first 200, now you're stretching it into, you know, a year and a half, two years. And that much I've seen happen. And so people say, well, fix it. And you go, great. We're going to start on the road of fixing it. You're going to see the results in many months slash a handful of years, not many weeks slash a handful of months. And I think this is one of the things that tech hasn't had the patience for. Yeah, But at some point, if you realize that in leadership, especially in leadership, if everybody on the, in the company is super excited about changing the culture and things are getting better, but the CEO hasn't mentioned it, big red flag. Big, big, big red flag because you all can want something so badly, but at the end of the day, you're not sitting in the room with your investors and the executive team and deciding how to squeeze pennies out of this out of this proposition, which is the pressure that that CEO is going to have
1: on them. If you don't have a CEO who is on board, then you are not looking at sustainable change. And the reason why is that culture is so many things but all of it ties back to incentives. Mm-hmm. A culture is built around incentives, and the CEO of an organization is the person who is best equipped to recognize and modify the structural incentives of the organization. Now, not just the carrots, but also the sticks. If somebody is participating in a particular kind of fuckery that no longer should be happening in the desired culture, then it's up to the CEO to make sure that either they fire those bad actors themselves or they give cover to their subordinate leaders who can then fire those bad actors. Because if you aren't able to show that there are consequences to not behaving in a healthy way, then there is no point to any cultural shift because there's no good reason to do it. That's right. It's up to the top of the stack to make sure that change follows through.
0: That's absolutely right. And, and as you talk, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a really important piece of fixing culture that I want to make sure folks know, and that is firings will happen. I have never seen, in the many, many companies I've worked with, I have never seen a situation where everybody just had a change of heart. (laughs) And wasn't it great? It's not
1: like a Joss Whedon movie where everyone just comes together and (laughs) and it's okay now after some initial distrust.
0: Yeah, you got to kill the vampires. I mean, that sounds terrible, but like what you have to know is who are the bad actors who are making this change impossible. And there are a few different kinds of bad actors. One, and the one that's most important to let go, is the one in a position of leadership who is undermining culture change. Across whatever it is that you're working on, you could be working on internal communication, you be working on diversity and inclusion, whatever it is. Integrity. If there, right, exactly. Ethics. If there is a leader, it doesn't even have to be an executive, right? It could be someone who just, you know, let's say that VP level or maybe that director level who is going around and unraveling the sweater that you are trying to knit. And as you go through and you're, you know, everybody's knitting together, oh, this is the best sweater ever. And that person's just pulling on the yarn as you, as you go. It's the only way I can explain how it feels to come back after, you know, weeks of work and then look and go, I'm sorry, he said what about the work we were doing? And then you have to go back and re-up and re-knit. That person has to go. Second kind of person who has to go is someone who's just been given too many chances. And that could be anywhere in the organization embedded below sort of the director level. And they're just a person who's just kind of like dragging their heels And the heel dragger, you know, if they're doing a good, quote unquote, job, like their tasks well, you want to give them chances. You want to say, all right, look, here's what I'm going to need to see from you in order for you to keep this job or in order for you to keep progressing. And the person who's just like, I don't like this diversity stuff we're doing. I think we, it's like, you can handle that for a while and try and bring them along. And then there's a certain point at which you go, you know what? Somebody else wants this job and you can't come along with w- with where we're going on this on this new culture i'm so sorry you are employable by lots of companies here in silicon valley
1: bye and, and this is not to say that you just give up on everyone who's no, grumpy because not what at we all. have found in our adventures is that there are so many people who do start out very grumpy and opposed yes. Be- they're my favorite. Yeah, because they have some preconceived notions about the the work that we want to do that, that are just completely inaccurate. And with a little bit of time, they discover the inaccuracy there, and they're like, "Oh well, shit, I was I was wrong about this all along. I'm I'm glad that's they right. stuck it out."
0: That's right, and and I think that that's why that's why we get our our fake tagline, you know, uh, Nicole and Danilo not as scary as you heard, or you know, right. <laughs> whatever whatever that is. You. you you find that oftentimes people are scared or we haven't done a good enough job of explaining and, and we need to spend some more time with them or they had a bad experience with some efforts at, an, at another job and it just went, you know, it went haywire and they're nervous that this is going to happen again. They're nervous about the security of their job position. We, I hear this a lot. A white guy in tech saying to me, I am just so nervous that when we start this diversity inclusion stuff... I'm going to lose my job because you're going to want to hire a black person to take over my job. Where does
1: this come from? Where does where uh, this like they're coming for our gerbs I, thing happen uh, in it, Silicon it has, Valley of all places?
0: I mean, it has, it, where, it is, where it exists, it takes hold, right? I mean, look at our political landscape right okay. now where you can instill that kind of fear in somebody that they're coming for you. Right. Like they're coming for your jobs, for your women, for your children.
1: Now, Nicole, just, just to be clear, in the course yes. of your career, has there been any situation where you have come into an organization, <laughs> instituted the mass purges of all <laughs> white men and then replaced them with black people? Has that happened before?
0: Hold on, let me th- let me think in my, my long history of, uh, of course not. It's just, that, that's, that's not a strategy. I don't, I, I don't know where it originally came from, but it, it, it festered in them for so long that their initial reaction to hearing about we're going to increase diversity is, "Oh no, that means I can't have this job anymore if I'm white." But, I mean, we see this in universities, too. And I talked about being at Stanford in the early 1990s and the, the pushback against affirmative action and people saying, you know, a well-deserving white kid, rich white kid, probably, you know, you probably took their spot. My favorite phrase, and, and everybody who's a person of color who's gone to a, an elite university has heard this, quote, we know how you got in. Like, that, that is the actual phrase that people use with you.
1: And motherfuckers, it's like... We know how you got in, which is that affirmative <laughs> action has been for white people for generations, and that wealth accrues. Well, I, you know,
0: you got to back way the hell up with them and just walk them through it, or decide it's not your job to do it. But you know, at some point, I decided to turn this into a career. To I had a friend in college who used to joke with me. He said, "You think people will pay you for you to talk about and teach them about race, class, and gender all the time?" I said, "Yeah, I." actually do. It's nutty. <laughs> and he's like, okay, good luck.
1: <laughs> I also want to just, just draw a quick case study here so that mm. it's, it's clear that we're not just on some weird hippie shit with, with this conversation, <laughs> which I, sure. I was just reading, uh, I was telling you earlier about Alcoa and reading a bit about their one-time CEO, Paul O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And O'Neill went in with a mandate for culture change. And he showed up and he said, what we're going to do is we're going to make this the absolute safest place to work in the industry. And these people were manufacturing aluminum, so that's really saying something. You know, big industrial processes mm-hmm. yeah, like that, yeah. like that's that can get people hurt. That's right. And people did get fired, and specifically they got fired when they were acting in obvious contravention to the goals of that new culture. And one of the examples was... According to O'Neill's new policies, anytime somebody got hurt, it was up to management to report that injury all the way up to the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's... what happens Ooh. is that one day O'Neill is blindsided by a nun who is talking about some injuries that happened in a Mexican plant of theirs. Mm-hmm. And. He, he shows her all these records. He, he says, listen, this, this isn't true. This, this is what all my records show about this. But nonetheless, O'Neill sends some people down to investigate anyway, and it turns out that there was an injury, and that that injury, while it wasn't fatal or even having long-term consequences, that injury wasn't reported. Mm. And so O'Neill finds out about this, and he fires the... Manager responsible for this, who had been at the organization for a very long time, who was very well loved and respected. But as far as everyone in the organization knew, it was like this guy fired himself. It was very clear what the cultural priorities were, it was about safety. Yep. And because he was not willing to act in service of those things, he had to go.
0: Yeah. I, w- I wish we could have a lot more of that here. And I'm not saying oh, I love firing people, yeah. firing people is horrible. But when everybody knows how and why, and that you have you, sometimes you have to do it, and it's clear why, and everyone goes, "Yeah, that sucked," but well, we're consistent. Most of the times, people just want to know what to
1: expect. People want a fair deal when they go to work.
0: They want a they want a fair deal. They want to know that this is a place that walks its talk. I think we talked about this last time that most people. Even if they say that they prefer a flat structure and they don't want managers or bosses, what they're actually saying is they don't want to be led poorly. I am willing to bet anybody you ask would still choose being managed and led well over no manager. But because bad manager is still the worst of all propositions, people would opt for no manager before bad manager. It's an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy, so let's create a flat organization because none of us know how to manage each other.
1: Right. All right, how about this last question here?
0: All right, go for
1: it. One common problem I hear from everyone, from little startup to big tech giant, is that their company's promotion system is broken. Is it possible to fix this? What is required to fix this at any size company? Or is everyone doomed to up or out?
0: Okay. Okay. Another one of the things that I will beat to death on here is the importance of one-on-ones with managers. It is the most fundamental building block of work is the one-on-one. Remember being in elementary school, Danilo, and and when you were learning about the metric system and they'd give you the little centimeter block. So you could say that's a a (laughs) one-on-one, right? It was a one-by-one cube, one centimeter cube. And then there were others that got bigger, but that was the fundamental counting measure. The one-on-one is the thing. And part of why promotion systems are broken is that even though companies may go through the one-on-one system, they do not use that fundamental unit of measure to roll up into an accurate, agreed-upon performance review for the end of a year. So that's one side. You'll hear people go, I just got the weirdest review. I don't even know what it means. This isn't anything we talked about this year. And I'll tell you exactly why. It's because your manager is disorganized with their one-on-ones and they're flying by the seat of their pants. That's, they do not correct. know that, they're, that their one-on-one conversations with you are supposed to roll up into no surprises when it comes time for your performance review. That's what's supposed to happen.
1: Because this works. you know. I, I got spoiled, actually. A, a huge reason for my discontent... As a worker in my career is that I actually got spoiled with some really good bosses right out the gate uh, during my college internship. And one of them told me something. He had worked at Procter & Gamble for a long time. And he told me something very similar to what you did, which is that, you know, I have a, a file for every single one of my reports And Mm -hmm. I tuck something into the file every time something notable happens if something impressive Mm -hmm. happens um, An artifact of that goes into the file if a problem happens I'll write a note to myself and tuck that into the file and then at the end of a performance review cycle I've got this comprehensive file that makes sure that I'm not using any recency bias to Assess how somebody is working. I'm actually able to see the full picture of how it is they've been contributing over the past interval. And yep, that's great. the consistency that that provided ended up meaning that people felt really like fairly represented in that system and people were very loyal because the performance and promotion system was not broken. They had a clear understanding of their own progress and they could trust that representation from their boss at the same time.
0: That's great. That, that's, a, that's a perfect example of the use of the one-on-ones. And I would also say the one piece I would love to see added is that the direct report would have a sense of what's in that file, right? So if they tucked a note away because something went wrong, it's not like, gotcha, it's a secret six note. months later.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? It's, not a secret. it's not a secret note. Nothing in there, no artifacts in there are secrets, So that in the next one-on-one, the manager says, hey, I want to let you know that this thing happened. It was a big deal. And here's why. And here's what I want to see next time. The other problem inside the one-on-ones is that managers go, oh, no, I think you're great. You're doing great. You're doing great. And devoid of any other concrete information, they'll just keep doing what they've been doing if you're not telling them the truth. If you think they're doing great, not only tell them they're doing great, but tell them what is great about what they're doing specifically. And if you want to see something else, they can't read your mind. They do not know that they ask too many questions in meetings or they don't participate enough in meetings or you've still been waiting for a report that they forgot about, but you never asked about it. What if
1: they're conflict averse? What what if you've got a leader who is (laughs) conflict averse and they don't want to confront their report about this behavior that eh, actually they'd like to see changed?
0: Your job as a manager is to figure out how to do that, even though you are conflict averse. You can even say to a person, you know, I'm conflict averse, so I'm very nervous about bringing up anything that seems negative. But it is my job to tell you that that thing that you delivered last week wasn't up to your normal standard of work. Right. That's not a if somebody turns that into a conflict, there's a different issue that's going on if everything else is on the up and up right conflict averse the problem is it usually means that people hold on to things until it blows up and the person who's on the receiving end of the blow up goes was this really that big of a deal and it takes forever to unwind the fact that, to unravel the fact that it wasn't this time it was the last 13 times and they've been keeping count and they're getting really resentful towards you and they just didn't bother to tell you that's on that's not on the person who made the mistake oh,
1: earlier in my right? career i had this boss who I absolutely loved, still love. I thought he was wonderful. He was also one of the worst bosses probably I'll, I'll ever have. <laughs> I mean, I was a pain in the ass at like 22, 23, and, and I still am, but I think I'm a little bit more productive with it. But there was just something that I'd been doing that got under his skin, and finally he just lost his fucking mind one day. And we end up having this like really tearful confrontation with each other, him and me. About how we're just frustrated about shit. And it ended up being, like, actually okay after this because we finally got it out. But looking back, I was like, you know, th- this would have been so much easier if yeah. weeks or months before that happened, my homie had just taken me aside and said, listen, stop being a pain in the ass on this particular topic. There's a better way to go yep. about it. That would have been easier for That's everybody. Right. Nobody's got to cry.
0: That's right. And even seasoned managers can forget to do that. Right. Cause you, you, you've been managing for a lot of years. You think you got a handle on everything. And then you go, Oh my gosh, I completely missed that thing. I can't believe I missed that. That's like a classic, classic move. Oh, I can't believe it. Be the leader who can clean it up and make it right. Be the leader who can say, listen, we can get through this. <laughs> and we promise we pinky swear to each other that we're never going to make this mistake again. Yep. Right. Those are the things. It's not don't ever make a mistake either. I think that's another thing that happens to people. They get so worried about making a single mistake. And if we put as much effort, half the effort into thinking about how we'll apologize for a mistake or how we'll rectify a mistake, if we put half as much energy into that, then we do not making a mistake. And I don't mean technical mistakes so much as I mean mistakes with interpersonal mistakes with each other.
1: Right. Although both are perfectly valid examples. Like you cannot be omniscient. You are always going to stumble over something. And what happens next is what defines the culture is like, do you get the opportunity to fix this? Do you get punished? Is it ignored?
0: You know, I worked I once worked with a CEO who tells a story about when his now multibillion dollar company uh, was very young, but getting some traction. He not once, but twice dumped their user database
1: oops and they had backups right
0: not the first time
1: oops well i mean (laughs) but you know what there is there it is that exposes some issues with 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 policy right there and it's not the individual's fault it's like all right there's there's a broken system here if it's possible to just destroy that much data A system dependent on no one making mistakes is not a system.
0: There you go. There you go. There's there's the technical way of putting it, and I I appreciate that. Well, hey, those were some good questions this week.
1: It's, It's fun to me that everyone finds this exercise so useful. Thank you for sending us questions. And if you have yet to ask us a question, we've got a whole form right here on our SoundCloud page for you to ask that question, so... Head on over to Viaconsulting.com, click on our podcast link, and you can ask us whatever you want to know about making a better, more inclusive, healthy workplace.